0: Hi, welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Andrew. And I'm Caleb. And welcome to episode 20, War and Peace. Are you aware that the original name of this podcast was War, What Is It Good For? Only people that watch Seinfeld are going (laughs) to get that reference, but I digress. Last time we discussed Denonville's invasion into Seneca territory and how it was a Pyrrhic victory. A victory in his mind, but it ended up being more harm than good. We talked about how the forts at Niagara and Frontenac were decimated by disease and scurvy and blockade, and how a love of a cow brought everything crashing down at Fort Niagara. Now, I did do a little more research, Caleb, and it turns out that the guy that was leading the fort at the time did die during that year of disease, so I bet you that cow was gone the next day. We also discussed how the Iroquois had a huge victory at Lachine, and that Denonville was recalled right before this disaster happened, but he had no idea that he had been recalled. That's right. When Denonville became governor of New France, he had this idea of coming down with an iron fist to strike fear into the Iroquois. So he went on this large campaign, but instead of striking fear, he basically stirred up the hornet's nest and he just incited rage throughout all five nations against New France. And now he's looking at, he's just had a village destroyed of his. The fur trade is completely cut off. He's lost hundreds and maybe thousands of men through disease and war, and it's looking like New France could be in serious trouble, both financially and maybe even for its very survival. We also mentioned how his plans at peace with the Iroquois were interrupted by other Native Americans that were trying to throw a wrench into the works, and so meanwhile, Denonville is making overtures for peace with the Five Nations. To get this, he gets a big concession. The Iroquois come to him and they say, "All right." here's what we want. We want you to destroy Fort Frontenac. Kind of a smart thing to ask when you've got the French over the barrel at that point. Yep. So we mentioned before that Fort Frontenac is a French fort deep down at the end of the St. Lawrence River where... Lake Ontario meets the St. Lawrence River. So it's pretty deep into Iroquois territory at this time. And it's also a very important strategic spot because it basically controls the vein into the Ohio country. And this is where the French have been launching most of their raids over the last few years. So Denonville agrees and he gives the order to send men there, blow it up, use gunpowder, get rid of it. I don't want to deal with these Iroquois anymore. Now at the same time, The Iroquois are hanging around Montreal and they're hanging around these villages looking for a place to strike. They're just looking for an opportunity. And so Denonville says, all right, let's send a group of people out. Let's see if we can catch one of these war parties that's trying to harass us. And so this is like the same week that he orders Fort Frontenac blown up, but the Iroquois aren't gonna offer any peace until they're sure that this place is gone. So on October 16th, 1689, Donville dispatches a scouting party of 28 people under the command of a guy named Nicholas Mante, probably pronouncing it wrong, don't care, and he's searching for Iroquois that are opposing a front outside of Montreal. They come across a group of 22 Iroquois at the Lake of the Two Mountains, and the French totally surprise them. They suffer no casualties, they take out 13 Iroquois and they capture three of them and only one gets away. So it's a small victory, But France finally has something to point to for a victory. Yay! Denonville's like, okay, finally, something's going good. So like we said, Denonville was not savvy that word had gotten back to the King of France of Denonville's blunders and uh, basically stirring up the Iroquois in a negative way for New France. So he doesn't realize, but his replacement is on his way. And not only is he on his way, but he's been on his way for several weeks now. And in fact, the very next day, guess who shows up in the bay, but his replacement. And the really funny thing is here, this isn't some new general from France that's coming here to clean things up, but this is our old friend... Governor Frontenac. Governor Frontenac. And when we say old, we mean old. This guy was 70. Now, for those of you that think that name... Frontenac sounds familiar, that's because it is. He was actually the former Governor of New France, and we had mentioned him very briefly in our last podcast. Frontenac had been replaced by Governor Labar, who acted as Governor for a very brief time before Denonville replaced him and now and now Frontenac has now been given his old job back. I can just picture this like a a football coach gets let go for doing a terrible job and they bring in some other coach and he does a bad job so they go back and they hire who uh who rex ryan again rex ryan takes a year off and he comes back in 2000 coaching the jets good for them (laughs) oh my now the interesting thing is what was denonville's last order before frontenac shows up denonville in order to appease the iroquois you remember he w- he ordered to have Fort Frontenac blown up. Wait well, a second, <laughs> Fort Frontenac? You don't suppose that the guy that's coming in, that's his fort that he built and named after himself, is it? This is his fort, and he's, it, it's almost comical to picture the exact day that this place is about to be blown up. He shows up to take back over New France. And so Frontenac shows up, and I can just see him. You did what? He's like, well, yeah, I already sent the guys. They're already on their way. And so Frontenac, he's he's just shown up on the job. He doesn't know anybody. And he hears about this guy that just had this victory over these um, two dozen or so Iroquois. And the guy that's just been victorious in this little skirmish, he sends him and 300 men in all haste to get to Fort Frontenac to stop them before they blow it up. Well, do they get there and stop them in time? I can just picture it. They're marching and they're just a few miles away. And all of a sudden they hear kaboom. Boom, they get there, and they've just missed it. The place is blown up. I think it might be important to talk about Frontenac a little bit and why he was why he was here, why he was sent back like it doesn't make any sense. Why would you recall a governor to France and then give him his job back there, and what was he doing there to begin with? because Frontenac came from a very prestigious family in inland France. He was a very well-known soldier he actually started his military career directly for the prince of orange and eventually works his way up from colonel all the way up to grand marshal that sounds big yes he he's he's a he's a big dude now frontenac he was in a he found himself in kind of a precarious situation he was kind of a national hero because of all of his successful campaigns in france But he found himself in astronomical debt. When you say astronomical, what are you talking about? Well, in modern, in like today's U.S. dollars, it was basically the equivalent of about a small sum of about $84 million. What the heck was he doing? Yeah, I couldn't (laughs) believe it. When I typed in their currency into this calculator and made it $84 million, I I couldn't believe it. I don't know how you get in that much debt. But he winds up in debt. He's got debtors calling him. What would anybody do in medieval times when you're a noble hero? That's marry a rich widow. Oh, that sounds like a great idea. So he marries this girl who's supposed to inherit all this money. But guess what? She ends up not inheriting it because her father ends up giving it to some other family member. So Frontenac is now married to some woman he doesn't like. And he has huge debt, but he's also a national hero. So the king of France, Louis Thirteenth, does him a little favor. And he has this law in place where if you are working under the king's service, you can go to another country and the debtors cannot repossess your estates because you're under direct orders for the king. So he gets sent to France, or he gets sent to Canada, which you can't possibly get any further at this time than possible from France, gets put up as governor of New France, And all of his debts are just on hold back home. What was the reason that Frontenac ended up getting kicked out of Canada the first time? Well, a big part of it was the clergy. Frontenac had certain techniques in trading with the Indians, and it was a very common technique, a very shady technique, and that was rum, alcohol, brandy. He would trade and give alcohol to the native americans in order to exploit them in their fur trading they would show up at the fort with their furs he would get them all liquored up and then he would take advantage of them and take their furs and then once they all became alcoholics he would then send his people into the villages with the alcohol and trade them you know a bottle of brandy for five beaver pelts which was just an astronomical price so this didn't take very well with the Jesuits who saw it going on. Not only are they taking advantage of the Native Americans, but they're also causing major strife in their villages and their society because the men are all starting to become alcoholics. So they write back to the French king and they're complaining about it. And at the time, the clergy aren't like they are today where they're just kind of peaceful, loving people in the community. At the time, the clergy were almost equal powers to the Kings in Europe at the time, especially in France, they had what was called the three estates and clergy was one of them. So I imagine he gets back to France and basically I think the King must have done him another favor. He hears Denaville's doing a bad job. So he sends him right back Mm -hmm. there. This, now your debtors can't collect all of your estates again. Now we need to give a general overview of what the heck is going on in England at the time and greater Europe as well. This time in Europe is called the Nine Years' War in America it was called King William's War James II was currently king of England but there was a problem with James II Caleb mainly that he was Catholic but predominantly most of England was Protestant at the time and this has been an issue that's going on in England for the past 100 years yeah, or more you got to remember even back in I think our Champlain episode but we were talking about this and how that keeps influencing who becomes in charge in New France and in the British colonies based on what religion the king is back home. Mm -hmm. So King James has a daughter named Mary. Well, Mary ends up hooking up with this guy named William, who is the Prince of Orange, and they get married. But some of the noblemen that are Protestants are back in England and are like, we got to get rid of this king because he's Catholic and Mary's going to become queen when he dies, but it turns out that James has had another wife and he's got another kid and now he's going to raise this kid to be Catholic. And we could have a Catholic monarchy dynasty going on. And this could be really bad news for all of us Protestant bigwigs here. So they conspire and write back to Mary's husband, William, and say, we would really like it if you would launch an invasion and we will totally support you when you get here. And this is what's known as the Glorious Revolution. That's what the the Protestants termed it. But William and Mary land in England. And James has to flee because the common people rise up against him, and the, the rich Protestants rise up against him, and he's forced to flee. And William and Mary take over to become co-rulers of England. This already sets off a crazy thing that's happening in Europe with all kinds of different treaties and wars going on. Very complicated. Gonna, very complicated. We're, we're not going to get into it. We'd have to dedicate a whole podcast. To focus on these things. So we're just giving you a broad background just so you can kind of understand what's going on to influence things in the new world. While this is all happening, Frontenac is being sent over. And so Frontenac, in addition to having a list of things to do, quell the Iroquois, pick up the fur trade again. Also, he wants, the king wants Frontenac to wage war against the English. Mm -hmm. And so Frontenac is not even there days and he's already got a plan formulated that he's set up back in France, and he's coming over. And their goal is to start targeting English colonies. So in January 1690, he's only been there two months, the French set out on snowshoes. Does this sound familiar, Caleb? Yeah, I think it always ends bad when you have Frenchmen on snowshoes. Uh, this time, the French are actually quite successful. Instead of sending in thousands of people like they've done in the past, they send in small teams of just a few dozen or maybe 60 to 100 people, and they target three different places in New England. They hit a spot in Maine, they hit a spot in southern New England, and then they also hit Schenectady, which is a town just outside of Albany. Now, the difference here, Caleb, is they're not going after Native Americans this time. That's right. They have a brilliant idea here, and it's, it's really going to influence a lot of things, but they had this idea where they would come in and instead of picking on the Indians like we've seen so many other times, striking them, burning their villages, this time they are not going to touch one single Iroquois warrior or family. They are going to come through and just kill the English. Now, at the time, the Iroquois are having peace talks with the English to strengthen their bond with one another so they can come in and work together and fight together against the French. By not attacking the Iroquois and just the English, the French are showing the Iroquois that they are stronger, but they are also merciful and peaceful to the Indians. So they are basically trying to make the English look like, they're making the English look like they're so weak that they can't even defend themselves, let alone the English keep assuring the Iroquois that they are gonna help fight and protect them. Mm -hmm. And it totally works. The other side of this is not only the Iroquois, but you have the Ottawa's and all these other Western Indians also that are looking at what the Iroquois have just done to the French. And they're thinking to themselves, maybe maybe hooking up with the French isn't a good idea. Maybe if we join the covenant chain with the English and the Iroquois, we could take out the French too. All three of us combined together, we could wipe out the French. But after these raids, especially the one that happens at Schenectady, they realize, all right, the English are in no place to help us out. We're just going to stick with the French. Forget we even thought about that. Now in Schenectady alone, Andrew, there was over 60 people killed in one of these raids and 100 people dragged back to Canada with the the French-allied Native Americans. So it's a pretty big deal. This is not a small little raid. This Mm -hmm. is a, a whole town burned to the ground. And like you said, this was just one of the three towns that they came through and sacked one after another. But Schenectady is right on the border where Mohawk territory is, and so they're right at the doorstep of the Mohawk nation. After these raids happen against the English settlements, Caleb, uh, things are quiet for a couple of years, but the French decide that they need to show a more forceful tone again. And so they decide to upend the apple cart, and they're going to invade Mohawk territory. And where are they going to invade? Everywhere. They are going to go back into the heart of Mohawk nation and try and capture their towns like they did in 1666. And much like Denonville's invasion into Seneca territory, where they went for their capital, and what we now know today as Ganandigan, they are going to go straight for the Mohawk capital. Yep. They get a lot more sneaky uh, than before. They're going to set out in the dead of winter. And, of course, French going out in the dead of winter, as we've seen before so many times, what could possibly go wrong? But they make it there unencumbered, And they actually go into the towns around midnight and they've caught everybody by surprise. The whole town is asleep. You know, I'm actually not surprised that they were able to catch everyone completely off guard because we see from every other French invasion throughout the past 200 years, everybody's seen them coming a mile away. They almost never even make it to where they're going because they don't have enough resources or they freeze. But just like how Andrew and I said... The French are now becoming a much more experienced force that the Iroquois are going to have to reckon with now. Mm -hmm. So they set out from Montreal January 25th, and three weeks later, they reach the territory. Uh, They surround the villages, like I said. They capture over 300 prisoners. They set fire to the villages. About two-thirds of the prisoners are women and children. Many of the men are away at this time doing something. We're not really sure what. Could be hunting, could be out, uh, doing something. What time of year was this? So this is early February or mid-February. Uh, word does get out though because the French have captured some of these New York Dutch settlers from the previous raid a few years ago, and now they're using some of these Dutch guides to come back down to guide them to these Mohawk towns. Well, one of them escapes, and he heads to Albany, and he gets a hold of Peter Schuyler who's the mayor of Albany and a major in the local militia. And he warns him and says, the French are coming, the French are coming. You know, get, get everybody prepared. And so Schuyler starts going out to all the different local uh, Dutch-English towns and raising the arms to, to get out there and meet this French army. They don't know where they're going to hit. Yeah, he actually is able to raise a pretty sizable militia force in a short amount of time. I think it was over 200 men. Yep, and as they're going out, all of a sudden a group of Oneidas show up. And they say, we heard that uh, there's some French here. And he said, what's happened? He said, they've already captured the Mohawk towns. They've burned them. They're hauling hundreds of people away. Meanwhile, another band of Mohawks show up. And so this united coalition of Anglo-Dutch, Oneida Mohawk people begin to pursue the French with all due speed. Now, the French are being weighed down because they've got women, children, and all their supplies, and it's the middle of winter. But then something happens that kind of sends the whole French plan to heck really quickly. And what's that? It gets warm. Now, you wouldn't think that that would be a problem. You would think, okay, well, that's that's good. Less chance of you to freeze to death. But there was a problem. They were expecting to go in the winter. And so all their provisions, Caleb, they sent them as uh, frozen meats and frozen different uh, perishable items. And so as they're traveling, it gets really warm and all their food thaws out, and it spoils. Another thing you've got to remember is they're very limited on their road system at the time, but in the middle of winter, it opens up a lot more areas that you can go because all the small rivers and the small lakes all the way from Canada down to New York are frozen. And if there's a lot of snow, the French now have learned to use snowshoes, and they can travel Mm -hmm. rather quickly over uneven terrain but now your snowshoes are useless and you're hauling all of these prisoners that don't have snowshoes and are slowing you down. And so they start getting harassed. Uh, They have two separate attacks where they're hoorayed and harangued by different coalition forces and they fight them back, but they realize we're running out of food. We need to ditch everything if we want to get out of here or none of us are getting out alive. When you have this large group of prisoners that you're taking back, you may be able to control them and you may be able to get them there. But it's recorded that they are hearing the whoops of these Iroquois and English and Dutch people outside at night and they know that they're surrounded. And like Andrew said, they are a strong enough force where they could probably fight them off. But what happens when they charge and fight you and then your hundred prisoners rise up and fight you from inside your group. And we know very much so that the Seneca women and the Mohawk and any members of the Five Nations, the women were very adept to fighting back. They could defend themselves very easily. So they're running into a big issue here. They get so desperate now that they're running out of food uh, that they begin boiling moccasins to try and get food. That's how desperate they are right now. They were just in these capital cities with probably tens and... Are hundreds of tons of corn and things like that stored up and they're all starving as usual and what they have to do is they end up dumping everything Caleb they they get rid of the prisoners they they just let them go 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 on back get out of here we don't have to deal with them they they get rid of their guns they get rid of their heavy blankets anything they can do to just run as fast as they can to get to Montreal but they're so famished because they they don't have any food left that they actually are too weak to carry on and they have to wait for a rescue party from Canada to come down and give them provisions. And uh, dozens of them starved to death on the way back. Wow. So another glorious trip for the French. That being said, it was no picnic for the Mohawk either because unlike before, when we've seen invasions happen in the summer and the fall, at least you've got time to go somewhere to another nation uh, to get ready for for winter, This is the dead of winter, and now these people are refugees and have to go to these other nations for support. And many of them, I'm sure, starve to death. And also, it really wasn't that long ago when the entire Seneca Nation had been, had been sacked. Yeah, this is just a couple of years before. So... Six years. It's the the five nations are getting pretty stretched thin at this point you can shuffle one nation into the four but now that you have two that have just suffered all of their towns and villages which take a long time to rebuild have just been destroyed we can see 6 years ago denonville has gone and kicked in the western door of the seneca and now frontenac has come down here and tried to burn off the eastern door of the mohawk so what's the smart thing to do though you've just weakened both flanks of this nation, but how do you finish them off? You go for the central fire and try and extinguish it. And that central fire is the Onondaga. But Frontenac is going to have to do some planning. And it's actually going to take him about three years to plan, build up his forces, and get the logistics in place to do, in his mind, one final strike to wipe out the five nations. So like we said, Frontenac finally, in July of 1696, gets a new army together full of the usual makeup, regular troops, militia, and Indian allies. And this time, again, about the same number that we've seen before, 2,150 people leave Montreal with Frontenac in command. He's in charge of this operation, and he's going to take on the whole Confederacy, being 74 years old. So Frontenac is walking out there, leading his army, and he is walking, it's documented that he is walking, faster than the youngest soldier there. He just has great endurance and prowess, and he's carrying backpacks on his back, and he's just... He was so well regarded for how well he held himself amongst the soldiers that he actually received a special award, the Cross of St. Louis. I'm going to call BS on this, Caleb. But Andrew, it's written right here in his memoirs. His memoirs? Well, well yeah. Who would have a better account of what went on than the guy that is there, seeing everything. Maybe other soldiers with first-hand accounts. Are you saying that uh, somebody else wrote things differently? Uh, Possibly. What what does your soldier say when he's writing home? They picked Frontenac up while he was sitting in a canoe, sitting in an armchair. So they basically carried him like uh, the Persian emperor? Yes. In an armchair through the woods, leading the troops. Uh, That sounds horrible. I don't know, that sounds great. That's how I'd (laughs) like to be carried through the woods. So why did he get the cross of St. Louis for his... Probably because he wrote that he was running in the woods faster than anybody else. I'm starting to think you can't believe anything colonial governors write home about. So their target this time is the Onondaga main village. We had mentioned before that this is the area where modern-day Syracuse, New York is. And this is the unofficial capital of the five nations. Yes, this is where they have their... Yearly council meetings with all of the sachems in the past, I mean Champlain tried to take out this village. he failed. Labar tried to take out this village, and all his people got sick. They failed this time. Frontenac is showing up, and the Onondaga realize we're in trouble. but what's the what's the best defense that they found that the Seneca used? Fleeing. run away. Why stand and fight and die? You can rebuild your village, but you can't repopulate your village. Mm-hmm. And so, same thing as before, the Onondaga retreat, and by the time the French show up, it's just a heaping pile of ashes. They burn their own town again, just like the Seneca did with their capital city. The French don't appreciate it when they take away the pleasure of burning their villages. And so, Frontenac does the exact same thing that Denonville does. He orders that everybody start burning all of the corn and all of the fields and all the food supplies that they can find that are cached about the village. And then they take a small contingent of 600 men and they go over to an Oneida village and they burn that village to the ground and destroy all that crops. And then they pat themselves on the back and shake the dust off their hams for a day well done and they return to Montreal. The total casualties of this great and wonderful war, Caleb, are three Frenchmen drowned and one French soldier killed by a lurking Iroquois on their homeward route. Iroquois casualties, one person. And I like to think that this is a very sad moment. They found one elderly Anadaga chief sitting in his house because he was too frail to leave and he said that it wasn't worth people carrying him away. Yeah. Just slow them down. We can kinda picture this in any movie where the enemies are coming in and your family is fleeing and you have the wise old chief there that realizes that he doesn't have long for this earth and he he says the old, I was born in this house and I'm going to die in this house. So and don't bother just, wasting time carrying me out. And he's just sitting there waiting. He shows up. The French turn him over to their uh, Indian allies and they burn him to death. And he sits there quietly, doesn't make a sound. This podcast is dedicated to you, wise old guy. Did he have a name? I, don't, I couldn't find his name. I'm sorry. But you're getting your just dues now. So we appreciate you, wise old man, who doesn't give the French the satisfaction <laughs> of hearing you scream. <laughs> now the Oneidas and the Onondagas find themselves in a similar situation that the Mohawks back in 1666 have found themselves in and that the Seneca found themselves in about a decade ago. Mainly, now they have to rely on the other nations to help support them through the next winter season. So this is quite a, a large amount of people, again, that the other three nations are going to have to do to support them. So it really is not helpful, but not a lot of people are killed, which is the good thing. But it is going to hurt your winter supply. And I have a feeling that it was probably a really rough winter trying to find enough to eat for everyone. Meanwhile, the Iroquois are thinking, all right, we have this covenant chain with the English. Let's go to Albany and let's see if we can get some help to prevent against these Canadian war parties. Maybe they'll even give us some guns and food and things like that. And they show up and they get practically nothing from the English. Oh, sorry, it's been a really rough year, and uh, if we were more in the black, we would love to help, but we really don't have anything, so sorry. Uh, We hope you have a great winter. After getting very little help from the English, the population of the Five Nations decreases significantly. In fact, they think that their fighting strength was reduced by half, leaving maybe only 1,300 people that were fit to fight left in the Five Nations, which is a mind blowing number, especially when you figure the amount of territory that they've been able to range across. Obviously numbers are just estimates. They could have had a lot more. But that's what the French records have and that's all that we have, so we have to go by it. But I still don't trust anything Frontenac says. The Iroquois tried to go to Frontenac to sue for peace, but Frontenac says, Mm No, I think I'm pretty good. Yeah, the pendulum has kind of turned back in his favor. He now has 2,000 trained soldiers who now have been on several campaigns in the last 10 years. So they are actually getting quite good at this Native American warfare. And that's actually another point that I'm glad you mentioned, Caleb, because the French are getting much more adept at this type of wilderness warfare. Instead of marching in straight columns now, they're learning how to deal with ambushes. They're learning how to do hit and run raids. They're learning how to use snowshoes to travel in the winter. They're learning and adapting to all these Native American fighting techniques, and so it puts them on a much more even playing field. Other Indian nations are taking note of this as well. We mentioned that the Iroquois pretty much had dominance all the way to Illinois territory, up into Canada, down into Pennsylvania and Maryland, but what happens when you're severely weakened and you don't have that many fighting forces to this empty power vacuum area? Well, We're going to see these pockets that the Iroquois had conquered and claimed as hunting ground. Now, all of a sudden, some of the original owners and other misplaced nations and tribes are going to start moving in and taking back over these areas. Yep. So, specifically, the areas north of Lake Ontario, many of the Iroquois had settled small um, trading settlements and other places, one of them being a place called Toronto, if you've ever heard of that, But now the Iroquois realize that it's really not feasible to be on the north side of Lake Ontario with the French there. So they move and resettle south of Lake Ontario. That leaves room for the Minnesota and the Chippewa people and the Ottawa and even some Remnant Huron to start moving down and moving back. Then in the Illinois territory, you've got Shawnee people that start moving in and settling into Pennsylvania. And there's this new colony of Pennsylvania set up and they're very friendly towards Native Americans and they're giving them in the Delaware sheltered in safe spaces, and there's nothing that the Iroquois can really do about this. Also, now the French can open up trade routes all the way to wherever they want. And now that the Iroquois no longer have the strength to man and take advantage of these trade routes that they've set up all the way from Indiana and Ohio all the way to the East Coast, now not only have they lost half their population or half their warriors they're going to have no furs to trade to keep the ammunitions and powder up, so they're just going to start sliding further and further down in power if something doesn't happen. Now, we mentioned that the French are now wide open to the trade, and so furs begin to flood the market all the way from the Mississippi to Fort machilla Now, I'd like to point out, thanks to one of our listeners, it is not pronounced... Fort Michilla Macnamac, as it's written, it's too think, bad because that that kind of rolls off the tongue nicely. It does, but it's Fort Michilla Macnaw because the French just can't seem to pronounce anything at the end of their words. Shh, you're gonna upset our French Canadian listeners, Andrew. It's a beautiful, romantic language, and you should appreciate it for what it is. Anyway, so you said furs are beginning to flood the market, which n- normally sounds good, right? Yeah, it'd, it'd be like here That's in America. That's what they wanted. Yeah, here in America say we found a huge oil reserve somewhere and it was enough to make enough oil for a hundred years in the country actually we did find something like that and we did start drilling for it relatively recently and what happened to the price of oil the price of oil the price of anything in economics 101 is supply and demand when you have lots of supply the demand drops and therefore the price drops so now they have these trading posts that are stacked to the brim with beaver furs, but they have so many that the demand is being met back in Europe, so they're only getting half the price for the beaver pelts. So It's actually worse, Caleb. Three times the amount of furs start coming in after this. So that's going to depreciate the value. Let's just throw out a number and let's say buy a third. Mm-hmm. So it's down to a third of the price of what you were paying last time. But it's still taking the same amount of effort to acquire these beaver pelts. So what do they do? They do the same thing that people do today when you have a problem with supply and demand and that's they start sending less to Europe and they're just going to put these in the attic and wait for the price to go back up and the demand to catch up and then they'll start sending them to Europe. But in the meantime, they got to foot all this. You could figure, all right, well, why don't they just not buy so many furs? Well, the problem is many of these Native American and First Nation allies are traveling hundreds of miles to deliver the stuff. And if you tell them, oh, you know what, we've got plenty, we well, don't need, we or don't need we're only getting paid half of what we used to, or a third of what we have to, so therefore we can only pay you a third of what we normally do, and they've just walked from Ohio to Montreal to do this for you, they're not going to come back to you again. And so they're worried that where are they going to bring them? They're going to bring them to the Iroquois, or they're going to bring them to New York or Pennsylvania. And so ironically, before the Iroquois were the middle people and the French were trying to cut the Iroquois out, but the Iroquois were actually a stabilizing factor to keep the prices competitive between everybody. Frontenac gets filthy rich off this. I mean, probably not enough to wipe out his 80 some million dollars in debt, but Frontenac's making a boatload of cash because he's dipping into this and he's got personal investments into all these fur trading posts. Back in Europe, the war is over. In February, 1698, delegates arrive from Albany, to inform the French that the Peace of Reisvik has been signed, and they're letting them know France and England are no longer at war. This is the end of the Nine Years' War, end of King William's War, so they're just letting Frontenac know to not screw with them again. After this, uh, there's even less incentive for the English to actually help the Five Nations, because now they're no longer at war with the French, and the Iroquois still technically are at war with the French, and so this covenant chain is looking actually quite tarnished indeed. Some good news, I guess you could say, if you're a member of the Five Nations, though. Um, that year, Frontenac passes on. If yeah, Frontenac died November 28th, 1698. He got a cold, basically. It was nothing serious, but you got to remember he's an old man at this point. And he dies peaceably in his sleep, supposedly. He's pretty much been deified by especially the historian's You know, we mentioned him running through the woods, outrunning the the men, defender of New France. There's there's some other battles that we didn't get into where the English try to take over Canada, but he pretty much saves New France. Yep. And Andrew and I do kind of joke about him because, I don't know, the French and our Canadian friends... I don't know, they can take a joke. We don't mean to, to smear your heroes. We hear it all the time with George Washington and stuff because he's one of our nation heroes and then people say he was a slave owner and he, you know, you know, they they so they all did bad things. But they all, but did, they bad all things. did things that had good character exactly. traits. Exactly. And Frontenac, we can see he really was a courageous guy. He was a tough guy. He was a good disciplinarian and he did most likely at the expense of the Iroquois save New France. But he also did some bad things. The alcohol thing, the exploiting the trade. There's another one, and I'm not sure if you know this, Andrew, but it was under his watch in 1689 that we find the first West Indies slaves in Montreal. I did know that. And he he linked New France to the West Indy uh, slave trade. So they start importing slaves into New France at this time under his watch and his encouragement. Mm Mm-hmm. But anyway, Frontenac is out of the way, and we've got a new governor that comes in. And this new governor really wants to smooth things over with relations. And so this guy gets an idea for a peace treaty to end all peace treaties. What's this guy's name? The new governor is Louis Hector de Calière, And he decides that he's going to hold a peace council. A big peace council. It takes a while to get all the invitations sent out and get everybody there. But in 1701, they assemble how many people was it? Like 1,300 people, Caleb? 1,300 chiefs and elders from over 40 different nations all across Canada and northeastern United States. We're talking about the Potawatomis, the Miamis, the Illinois, the Five Nations, all these different Canadian people. Uh, The list is just expansive. Pretty much anybody that we've talked about before was there. And they start hammering out deals and trying to figure out how we can go forward to make everything peaceable for everybody. Everybody can still trade. Everybody gets along. We don't need to deal with all this war on all sides. And so the main points that come out of this are the Iroquois are going to remain neutral in all future conflicts with the French and the English. If one of them goes to war with each other, we're going to sit tight and not get involved. It is not our problem. At the same time, the French are not allowed to just walk through Iroquois territory to go attack the British. And conversely, the Iroquois are going to tell the English, you cannot walk through our territory to attack the French. The Iroquois are free to openly trade with anyone they want. They are sovereign nations. And all these other Canadian nations are sovereign nations that can trade as well. If any of these nations have a problem with one another, they're going to go to the French as mediators to resolve their issues before it goes to war. Those are the general bullet points. And do they work? No treaty is perfect. There's still going to be strife and issues, but for the most part, we're not going to see all out war with villages being burned like we've seen in the past for a while now. There's going to be several decades of relative peace. That doesn't mean that the Iroquois aren't going to launch some attacks against some outskirt place here or there, or conversely, different tribes are going to come into conflict. It's going to happen, but we're not going to see Armies of 2,000 Frenchmen marching through and burning down entire places. And conversely, we're not going to see massive war parties going and invading entire new countries. So, for the most part, yes, it really is a great piece. And it really does work for the time. Do you think the English were really happy about this? I have no idea. I mean, I imagine that uh, not having to worry about the French come down and attack them was good. But what the British were really upset about was, one... The Iroquois didn't clue them in. The Iroquois actually at this time went down to Albany and signed a separate peace with the English and kept them totally out of the negotiations with this. And this opens up the French to pretty much trade all the way west of the Mississippi without being harassed. That means that the British are now cut off from getting all of that potential trade going to them. So no. They're not happy about it. In fact, the following year, in 1702, the English informed the Five Nations, they said, hey, did you know that the French are building this huge fort at a place called Detroit? That's your territory. You need to do something about it. And the Iroquois response was, no, you can do something about it. It's not our problem anymore. And the British are like, oh, maybe we've not uh not sent enough flowers to our girlfriend recently. Yeah, the European powers for hundreds of years had basically these ways of waging war, against each other by using the Native American nations to do the dirty work. When there is peace between the French and the English king, they can't openly go and attack them. But what they can do is basically do a wink, wink, nudge, nudge with a certain nation and ask them to go attack the French for them, or the French to go and attack the British for them. But now you can't do that anymore. And the Iroquois don't want to do it anymore. They need to regroup. They need to figure out what's going on. If you look at where they were just a few years ago, now within a decade, it seems like all of that power and that glory are about to be extinguished. They've been, you know, they've done this treaty willingly, but it seems like they're relegated to a a second-rate power now versus before they were on par with the English and the French. But they still have their wits. Um, They're not going away anytime soon. They're going to think out, they're going to figure out ways to come back and regain some of that power and influence they're going to learn to use diplomacy instead of a hatchet. That's right, Andrew. When you think of Iroquois people, there's two pictures in your head. One is the terrible warrior with the tomahawk in his hand, and the other one is the wise old sage using incredibly crafted words to sway treaties and alliances with other nations, as well as improving the livelihood for their own nation. So from now on, we're going to really see the rise of the Iroquois diplomacy. We're going to see them be great speakers and great thinkers. And we're going to have some pretty interesting records of some of their speeches. It really is remarkable, especially once you get into the written record, how poetic everything is. They use all kinds of metaphors when they're talking about basic things. And it really is like reading Greek philosophy when you hear them speak. I just use common sense to point out, why would we do that when, and they give some example in nature or some example in the past that they've seen. And it's just like, of course, that makes total sense. So the Iroquois aren't going anywhere, but there's definitely turning to a new chapter at this point in their existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As we mentioned before, they've kind of hit their high water mark when it comes to expansive territory. Now they're, that doesn't mean that they're not going to keep expanding from here on out. They're definitely going to do that. But the the route is going to be different. So thanks so much for tuning in this time, folks. We really appreciate you all. We hope that you had a great Christmas and holiday time with your families. Thank you to all of you that left us iTunes reviews and uh, our new Facebook friends. Uh, for the first time, Aeroquois History and Legends reached the top 200 chart on iTunes History Podcast. So thank you very much, everybody. So if you keep leaving reviews, we're going to keep moving up. Check out our website, at longhousepodcast.com. Also, we want to do a special thank you shout out to Ganandigan Historical Site in Victor, New York for all the help on our last episode. We'd encourage anybody in the Western New York area to swing by there. They have some very knowledgeable historians on staff as well as experts in anything you want to know about the Haudenosaunee and an interactive, authentic reproduction longhouse that you can visit. Which, if you want to see what a longhouse is, there's only like two places in the world you can go to see it. And this is one of them. So thank you so much, everyone. We hope to have a new episode out for you soon. Bye, everybody.